0: With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why you wear. We're your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. It's been a standing joke amongst my friends for years that my alter ego is an international couture thief, (laughs) like a cat burglar, except she's not coming for the gold bullion in your safe or your Picasso. She's coming for your closet. A 1947 dress from Dior's first collection? Yes, please. Anything Scaparelli, always. I mean, I named my dog after the reclusive, legendary, early 20th century couturier Madame Grey, so this probably speaks a bit to my level of obsession. I would never actually put this fantasy into practice, of course, but it is the subject of today's podcast. Not stealing fashion exactly, but smuggling. Today, we are pleased to
1: welcome guest Hind Abdul-Jabbar, a New York-based fashion historian. She's going to enlighten us on the pervasive practice of dress smuggling in the 19th century. It was actually so widespread a practice that the U.S. government was forced to take action.
0: Thank you so much for being here with us today, Hind. You and I actually met several years ago in the context of researching fashion history. I was delighted several months ago to read your piece that you wrote for Fashion Studies Journal about what was termed fashionable smuggling during the 19th century and
1: our listeners might agree with me when I say what the heck was dress smuggling
0: oh so Hind I have a little bit of a request um, before you answer that directly in your article you reproduce this really charming little poem that was printed in Harper's Bazaar I think it was in 1872 and it kind of speaks really well to this what the heck was dress smuggling would you be willing to share a part of it with us yeah,
1: sure. I'd be happy to read it.
0: So, And first of all, thank you so much for being here. Oh,
1: absolutely. This is <laughs> such a pleasure. I'm so excited to uh, let everybody know what dress smuggling is. <laughs> and I guess the best way to do it is by reading this poem from, like you said, 1872, Harper's Bazaar. It's called Nothing to Wear. It's quite a long poem, so this is just an excerpt from it that speaks to the smuggling aspect that I cover. The last trip, their goods, shipped by the steamer Arago formed mcflinsey declares the bulk of her cargo not to mention a quantity kept from the rest sufficient to fill the largest size chest which did not appear on the ship's manifest but for which the ladies themselves manifested such particular interest that they invested their own proper persons in layers and rows of muslins embroideries worked underclothes gloves handkerchiefs scarves and such trifles as those Then wrapped in great shawls, like Circassian beauties, gave goodbye to the ship and go-by to the duties. Her relations at home all marveled, no doubt. Miss Flora had grown so enormously stout, (laughs) for an actual belle and a possible bride. But the miracle ceased when she turned inside out, and the truth came to light, and the dry goods beside, which in spite of collector and custom house sentry, had entered the port without any entry. (laughs)
0: Um, those 19th century satirists always give their
1: characters the best names. I think her name was Miss Flora McFlimsey. Miss Flora McFlimsey, yeah. She was a, a cautionary tale about being a virtuous woman and not saying <laughs> I have nothing to wear when she has, as you can see in that poem, plenty to wear.
0: So the the media was clearly aware of this practice if the fashion press was was talking about women bringing in fashions without paying customs duty on them. What kind of publications were talking about this at the time?
1: So this garnered a lot of coverage. What I focused mostly on was the New York Times because it provided probably the most amount of coverage for me. The Customs House was in New York. Um, It gave me probably the most examples happening, but there were magazines that covered this. You had political cartoons making satire about this and You know, even, you know, local newspapers in New York, Boston, Chicago, where there was a dressmaker.
0: So a lot of people were talking about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You also had a little interesting story about Belle? Oh, yes. The milliner Belle Otis. Can you tell us about her?
1: Sure. So I think one of the major reasons why people were smuggling is because they needed to get that French fashion that their clientele wanted. So Belle Otis is one of those people who did that same thing and she understood it she didn't always love it so she was discussing this instance where she had a customer come back she was upset because she didn't feel that her flowers were french <laughs> so yeah it had
0: to be just it so it had to be
1: french french was the fashion so she had her sit down she gave her a french fashion plate to look over while she goes in the back and she uh, procures this french label She's not sure if it actually belongs to her customer or somebody else, but she decides not to bother to explain that to her. It was easier to just pass it on as it is. And in in her diaries, she also talks about using French wooden boxes because French bonnets come in wooden boxes. So, you know, she knew to be successful, she had to partake in deception, well-intentioned or not. And part of that was pretending parts of their things were French. And then the other part was smuggling those things that are French.
0: Right. So um, if any of our listeners caught a previous episode that we did on the fashion designer Elizabeth Haas, this obsession with French fashion is what Haas termed the French legend. And it was this idea that only the French could produce the most beautiful clothing um, and that all women across the world wanted them. So who exactly were these women practicing fashionable smuggling?
1: Yeah, so what fascinated me most about this was not what was being smuggled, but who was smuggling and how they were doing it. One consistent type of profession that showed up while I was reading through these New York Times articles were dressmakers and milliners. These women, to ensure their businesses thrived, took part in the act of smuggling because they knew that's what their clientele wanted. They wanted French fashion. Paris's reigning influence over Western fashion dictated their business practices, They studied fashion plates, they copied styles, they purchased French fabrics and trims with their clients in mind, and, you know, at times they fabricated their lineage. So, you know, they became madame, mademoiselle, modiste, anything just to give them that French edge. So a lot of the times they were going over because they had to bring these things that their clients wanted, and, you know, French fashion is costly. On top of that, the duty was incredibly costly. So one way of making sure their businesses thrived and they pleased their customers was to evade that duty. And that's where smuggling comes in.
0: So the smuggling was really an effort to avoid paying import duties or taxes on goods that were being brought in from Europe.
1: Yes. So in the mid to late 19th century, high cost of tariffs targeted importations on textiles and other luxury goods. Taxation on silk was reaching above 50%, much higher than the cost in the pre Civil War era. Wow. Although there were times when tariff reform was attempted, the government continued to impose higher tariffs. And the McKinley Tariff Act in 1890 really affected the cost of dress goods, mainly silk, finer cottons, used for lace and embroidery. And they probably came from Germany, England, and France.
0: So it's really interesting how like again and again and again after you study the history of fashion about this intersection of fashion and politics
1: and
0: and economics that that people don't always like readily associate with it. Um, and I actually did a little bit of—once I read your article, I, mm. I was fascinated, so I started reading some—I tumbled down the rabbit hole, too. Oh, okay. Started reading articles. Yeah, you just can't stop. Once no. You <laughs> um, some of them are really interesting from, like, the 1870s and the 1880s about the people who were actually busted doing this. And one of the things that I found interesting was that not all of them were women. Mm. Um, there was this one story of a man in 1881. He was coming back from Europe— He originally declared to the customs officers that his trunks didn't include goods that were subject to duty. But later on, he was found to have in his possession like $130,000 worth of women's clothes in his trunks, um, including a wedding gown that was um, valued at about $16,000, 45 pairs of leather gloves. Uh, I converted all this in today's dollars, by the way, just so you have a frame of reference there. So— What and whom was subject to this duty? He, at the time, claimed that all of these were for his daughter. But I doubt she was probably going to wear 45 pairs of gloves, maybe.
1: You know, she might be incredibly fashionable (laughs) in today's society. But, you know, the custom duties laws are not so dissimilar to what they are now. It applies to Americans returning home. You must declare goods purchased abroad, whether it be for personal or commercial reasons, and then pay the appropriate duty rates for each purchases. Um, these duties were especially high on dress goods. So, a lot of people rather said, I declare nothing, or I'll undervalue my declarations, or I'll try to pass them on as like personal products. So, sometimes people would say, Oh, this is what I left with, and I'm right. coming back with it. Or, in the case of this gentleman, he's pr- trying to pretend that they're for his daughter. So, it'll be a different, you know, he's got caught, basically. So now it's like, I'm going to pay a different duty because I'm trying to say. So it's
0: like a a personal family connection, not necessarily an
1: intention to sell. Retail. (laughs) Yeah, which that very much, I think those 130,000 worth of women's clothes was probably for selling.
0: Yeah. I also read another article that um, from 1875. So around, all of this is around the same time. And it estimated that about $3 billion worth of dutiable merchandise was smuggled in by these American tourists returning from Europe. And in 1871, um, it was estimated in this article that the U.S. government lost $272 million in revenue due to all these undeclared goods. Um, So fashionable clothing was only part of this number that I just mentioned, but you can see here the kind of money that was actually at stake. And when we come back from the sponsor break, We will find out what the government decided to do about this. Hind, uh, tell us, how did the U.S. government address all of these millions and millions of dollars of lost revenue?
1: So the government institution responsible with dealing with this issue was the U.S. Customs House in New York. Um, just a quick side note, the New York Customs House is actually now the Museum of American Indian. And it's gorgeous. Gorgeous. And uh. if you go, when I went down, you can still see there was a huge mural yeah. um, with referencing that. And I had to go up to check the archives. And you can see it says a custom inspector's office. So it was a pretty cool moment for me because I'm obsessed with the U.S. Customs. <laughs> um, but at that time, the primary port of entry was New York. And they generated a lot of revenue for the federal government. And naturally, the U.S. Customs House was a large and prominent institution. It was actually the second largest federal employer with more than 1,300 employed in New York alone by 1877. I believe I think it was the only the U.S. Postal Service that has more. Don't quote me on it, but that's what I recall. Um, It was a very well-paid gig to work at the Customs House. And at the time, a position at the Customs House was a really lucrative one because of the practice of the moiety system. Now, the moiety system basically allowed customer or officers and collectors to enjoy a cut in all fines and forfeitures, which made some very wealthy because a lot of people did abuse that system. And then it did give that Custom House that image of corruption rather than somebody who is protecting. Yeah, that seems like
0: the perfect scenario for corruption.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it was it was an issue for them. Like, it was something that they really had to fight against because they were supposed to be the protectors of protectionism. Mm-hmm. The whole point of the U.S. Customs House was to create revenue and then create protectionism so people could be interested in buying U.S. goods, domestic goods, and maybe deter people from seeking goods outside of the U.S. But once you give somebody the taste of foreign markets, it's hard to tell them to stop right purchasing. Um, so... They had this reputation of being incredibly corrupt. And then, you know, the moiety system did end in 1874. But, you know, there was bribery between smugglers, inspectors, crew members, and even travelers knew about this. So sometimes they'll leave a note on top of their trunks, hoping the inspector will take that and let the trunks just pass on by. And they really tried to shift their image and they had propaganda pieces out, and tried to shift the blame to the traveler rather than the institution. And there was this one quote that I really liked. It was in Harper's Magazine that said that's really trying to build the Custom House. And it says, three things are perfectly clear to the city of New York. First, the United States of America is the greatest country on earth. New York is the greatest city in the country. Third, Custom House is the greatest institution in the city. So they were really trying to build it up. And, I mean, you could see PR. the building at, yeah, at the Museum of American <laughs> You guys have a PR problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so they shifted the blame to the smuggling practices of the travelers and especially the women. The increase of women and those women were predominantly dressmakers and milliners. Mm-hmm.
0: So how did these customs agents go about ascertaining who was and was not a smuggler?
1: And that was a very complicated task for most inspectors, but they had their ways. Um, the reason why it was very hard to gauge who could be a suspected smuggler is that they, they were afraid they might accidentally offend a prominent person with right. such accusations. Because I think...
0: Uh, you definitely had to have money to be traveling internationally like that at that time.
1: For sure. And I think what's very... First, it was complicated that they were addressing women And then the dressmakers, because they worked with fine things, knew how to present themselves as respectable ladies, thought of themselves as respectable ladies. And so you couldn't really tell the difference. They knew there was a difference because there was one quote that said like, oh, that group of ladies turned out to be a group of milliners. So there is that class distinction, but they can't tell just by looking at the eye. And sometimes the inspectors are like, you know what, I'm going to offend every single lady. Like this thing is just going to go unchecked. But they had to do something. So one of them was that they started to pay attention to fit and silhouette.
0: Because what was happening is that a lot of these clothes were being smuggled under other clothes, right?
1: Yeah, and a lot of it was, you know, a lot of things in the trunks, but the the ingenuity was how they put it on their person and tried to pass it on their body, their body as being the vessel of smuggling. So they first was looking at fit and silhouette. So. If things like there was dressmakers who would wear the clothes that they bought that are intended for their clients. So if it was loose fitting, it's a much bigger than it should be or much smaller than they're like, you know what? That doesn't look right. Let's stop her. The crinoline skirt became something that just caused suspicion immediately just because of its width and its expanse and how much that might be underneath it. So if you wore that, that probably got you stopped there as well. And, you know, they just, they just were paying attention to things like, is the collar looking okay? Are the sleeves fitting correctly? You know, you never thought that the inspectors were going to be like an astute eye for tailoring, but that's kind (laughs) of what they became. And then the second one was they hired female inspectresses, as they, they were called, not, you know, just inspectors, they were inspectresses. And they were able to maybe make those stops and seizures that a male customs inspector felt very uncomfortable doing. Right.
0: Um, So you mentioned the the crinoline. Um, There was an account in the New York Times that one woman was able to conceal beneath her hoop skirts, a thousand yards of lace, half dozen bottles of perfume, six lengths of expensive silk, three dozen pairs of gloves, 12 bottles of brandy, 10 ready-to-wear dresses, and a whole bunch of other, like, small, various items. So... Yeah, this was a serious business. Um, And with the duty, like you said earlier, running up to 50% on some of these things, you can really understand how this ended up being profitable.
1: For sure, yeah.
0: So when we turn from a sponsor break, we're going to hear more. So historically, these voluminous expanses beneath um, women's cage crinolines or hoop skirts, they had long held the suspicion of some men, and writers suggested at the time that this style might be used to disguise a woman's physical deformities or perhaps even illegitimate pregnancies from suitors, potential suitors. And satirists had a field day with these enormous skirts, Um, and they were the butt of countless cartoons, Mm. including one where it wasn't fashion being smuggled beneath, but food, including, like, game birds, sausages, and bread. But The Victorian-era morality designated this space beneath the skirt as intensely intimate um, and private. And that's probably why it was considered an ideal scenario for concealing these items. Can you speak a little bit more to this?
1: Well, during that time, the separation of sexes were clearly defined. And for a male inspector to be so bold as to thoroughly search a respectable lady, which might include in or around her skirt, was not just uncomfortable for her... But for him as well, Um, it could question his own moral character. There was this one New York Times article that said an inspector who's bold enough to chase a pirate all over a ship's deck, if need be, could not very well search a couple of ladies. Right. And I think that the Customs House definitely saw this issue. And I think that's why they brought on those inspectresses, because they didn't have that same moral dilemma to deal with. Right.
0: Um, You also wrote a little bit about how a rather sudden disappearance of the fashionable cage crinolines in favor of a much more narrow silhouette um, during the 1890s. This may also have something to do with dress smuggling.
1: Yes. So there was one New York Times article that made a bold statement that said that the crinoline was out of fashion because people didn't want to be mistaken as a possible smuggler. So they're going on these trips and coming back wearing much more fitted silhouettes so they didn't even have to worry about hiking up their skirts or somebody looking through them. They're claiming that that's why the crinoline went out of fashion. Now, that's the (laughs) only reason why it did. I'm not sure. But I just loved, again, how much they really paid attention to fashion on a political stage, not a, you know, not in a magazine or something, that they're noticing different style trends and silhouettes. Right. you know, but the bustle became a problem later on. So crinoline was out, and fitted skirts made it a little easier. But then the bustle came and came caused back, yeah, a lot of headaches.
0: So what were some of the very specific tactics um, that people used to avoid paying this duty? Because I know some of them are kind of funny.
1: Yeah. So for dressmakers and milliners, why they were so successful at this is because they were able to use both elements of their social makeup, that of a respectable lady and a working woman with a skilled trade to evade capture. First, she dressed the part. She knew how to because her job was to create fashions for her most fashionable clients, so it was easier for herself to do that. If appearance was not enough to bypass inspectors, then she used her trade. So she, you know, a lot of people, a lot of women sewed in that, you know, century. Most, I would
0: argue. Yeah, (laughs) and so,
1: but this for a dressmaker, this is her profession. This is her skill. It's been cultivated for years and years. So she took that and easily applied it to her smuggling. So then it became sewing things within linings, creating these pockets underneath the crinoline skirts, um, sewing things in the bustles underneath all those tucks and fabrics. And they were just very ingenious in trying to conceal as many items that they can. And it really bewildered the New York Times writers, reporters, and the customs inspectors. They just... You know, a lot of it, it's like they're talking as if they're seeing magic. They just don't know how (laughs) they're... Magic silhouette. Yeah, they just don't know, like, how any of that was able to happen. And there was one, I'm going to see if I can find it, from the Swell Milliner. It was a New York Times article saying that the lady, and this is, I'm quoting, the lady is an adept in the art of packing and can force a room full of silk into a Saratoga trunk. The oldest expert cannot imagine how it's done... And as fold after fold comes forth from its limited receptacle, both wonder and admiration are excited. There's so very much can go into very little. So they were just completely mystified. And then one of the reasons, again, the inspectresses came in because as women, they just assumed they were experts in fashion. And they were able to find these things that a male customs inspector might not know just for being male. You know, where a woman is just innately knows the the wiles of fashion, the tricks of fashion, that the deception of fashion that men might not.
0: I had a sudden thought while you were saying that, of that scene in Mary Poppins where she opens up her bag and just yeah. keeps pulling things out, including a lamp.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think of my own bag. I'm surprised sometimes how much I stuff in there. I'm like, how did I get all this <laughs> stuff in? And I'm always, you know, we, we carry our lives in there. Yeah,
0: but. true. Um, So, some women considered this a little bit of an art form, I take it. Why do you think that they felt morally justified to engage in this sort of deception? Because I imagine that a good many of them probably had objections to stealing based on religious views that they held.
1: Well, first, I think this is different because this isn't necessarily stealing. They bought these items, so they felt like they already paid for these, so they don't really understand why they're being almost punished to pay these exorbitant fees when they come back home. And almost, like, it was a dread for people to go to the customs house and go through that process. But, you know, and I think there was an instance, there was a travel guidebook that said, like, it, they make you feel like it's unpatriotic to buy foreign goods, and then on top of that, they make you do penance for buying it, and they just found it incredibly unfair. Now, for women, there was also this association that as pious and virtuous as you are, you can't help but being drawn to fashion. It's a, it's a control that you don't really, you can't get yourself out of. So there was one very interesting article I read talking about the smuggling craft, and it was written from the point of view of a woman. And she gave it a little bit more of a political twist than I've I've seen in my other research. And most of the time I will say that people were doing this because it cut costs low. It was a business reason. They weren't necessarily, like, fighting the government or trying to generate new tax reform.
0: It wasn't a political statement. it It was
1: not. No, they were just like, this is expensive, and I got to see how to make it not expensive. But there was this writer for the Christian Union. She published an article in 1873. And you have to remember, this is, like, maybe not even 10 years after the Civil War ended and a lot of women were involved in the war and they felt useful, then all of a sudden they're back to just being, you know, your regular standard Victorian lady. And she argues that people feel stifled. And, you know, there's this great way that she ended it. Why should not, as I'm quoting, why should not Lady Midas, the wife of yon railway king, use her feminine ingenuity to bring her nine trunks unrifled and unvalued? The law knows her not, save as it knows her Irish nursemaid or the toddling baby at her side. It is a dangerous experiment to cultivate and stimulate a woman's powers in the free soil of the Yankee growth and then give them no outlet, save the feminine byways of dress and deception. So here she's already associating women with fashion and with deception. So they're not doing something out of character in a sense, but they have no other outlet, as she argues than those two, so they're going to do it. Right. So
0: these changes in the tariff laws um, may have coincided with the rise of women's, American women's political agency, but uh, when the laws were changed, it didn't stop fashionable smuggling. Yeah, no. Um, It continued on well into the 20th century in America, as well um, as abroad. I read another 1927 article, so we're looking at a good... You know, fifty years later, yeah. Um, and it was in the London edition of Women's World Daily, which I didn't know until I read this that there was a London edition
1: of I Women's World
0: Daily. <laughs> um, but it talks about these quote unquote private buyers who are traveling frequently between London and Paris. And the, one of the quotes uh, that I read said, "Anybody would suspect a craft stealing through the water with silenced oars in the dead of night." But who is to suspect a pretty traveler wearing one Paris model and carrying three others in her trunk? So for these private buyers that we're talking about now, these garments didn't remain in the woman's possession for long. They Mm -hmm. were actually ultimately destined for the copy market, which we did talk about in our Elizabeth Hawes article also. It's interesting how these things keep making connections. But a private buyer's duty that they paid was... compared to what a dressmaker's agent would pay, which in London at the time was approximately 30% in the 1920s. So it was these copy houses that were sending these women, and sometimes they were aristocratic ladies even, over to buy, buy models that they were bringing back. And other times it was not the copyists themselves that were up to trickery. But sometimes even couture houses. Um, In 1938, there was a manager from the New York location of the Paris couture house, Marcel Rochas, And he was actually sentenced to jail time. Oh, wow. One year and one day (laughs) in prison. And then he had to pay. And he served it? Wow. Yeah, $9,000 fine. But this manager of the New York branch of Marcel Rochas, he said that it was the couturier himself, the designer himself, that ordered him to hire professional models to wear the clothes over, and then those clothes would be retailed in their New York salon. Yeah. So there were all sorts of these different permutations of people doing this forever. And as I'm sure you know, it's not unheard of to find um, authentic haute couture garments in museum collections that simply don't have labels in them because women were cutting them out and, you know, trying to pass them off as like a, a lesser echelon of fashion. So that's why primary sources are so great for us magazines sometimes help you figure out what you got (laughs) and thank you so much for joining us on dressed i for one can say unequivocally that i definitely learned something
1: today and i'm sure our listeners will agree oh well thank you for having me i'm i hope that everybody learned about smuggling but i this is not something i don't smuggle it's time (laughs) you go to europe just (laughs) declare your duties it'll be okay until next week,
0: we hope our listeners indulge in a little secret of their own, perhaps, when getting dressed. And as always, you can find images pertaining to this week's episode on Instagram at Dressed Understore Podcast, which is also our handle on Facebook and Twitter. So what are you waiting for? Follow us already.